So welcome everyone to the second episode of this podcast series called Environmental Justice Litigation. Uh, this podcast series is a part of the student project at the University of Oslo. My name is Iva Svalina and my co-host is Konrad Sandvik. Konrad, who are we speaking today? Well, today we are interviewing Kristina Voigt. She's a professor of environmental law here at the University of Oslo. And uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more about the relevant uh, laws of the case at hand and also to learn more about the actual judgment uh, of the Supreme Court on this matter. So uh, if you don't have anything to add, I think we'll just cut right to the interview. Let's go. Uh, so today we are joined by an expert in international law, uh, Dr. Christina Voigt, professor at the University of Oslo, Department of Public and International Law. So thank you so much for being with us here today, Christina. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. And uh, first off, can you just give us a brief explanation what the Norwegian climate lawsuit was from your perspective and how it unfolded in the Norwegian court system? Um, sure. I mean, the, the, the lawsuit concerns a number of petroleum exploration licenses that were uh, provided by the, the government in 2010, I believe. And uh, the question was whether the um, lawmaker, by issuing or approving these licenses, violated a new provision, a fairly new provision in the Norwegian constitution, uh, paragraph 112, which in short term um, establishes a right for every person to a healthy environment and to live in, in healthy environmental conditions. Um, it, it, the claimants tried uh, this case uh, in several um, instances in the Norwegian court system, and uh, they um, did not win through all the instances. It went all the way to the Norwegian Supreme Court, and the Norwegian Supreme Court um, established that these licenses did not violate uh, this particular uh, constitutional provision. Uh, that part of the decision was um, uh, 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 there was no dissents, but a second part concerned whether the government had violated certain um, procedural provisions, and here the uh, court was divided, uh, where some of the judges, three judges, actually found that the government um, would or should have um, um, had an environmental impact assessment to a larger degree, taking into account the impacts of climate change before issuing the licenses. Uh, all in all, the, the judgment was... Um, was uh, unfortunate, but it was not surprising. It was something that, uh, given the legal, the Norwegian legal um, history and nature, was expected. It, I would have been very surprised if it had been differently. It would have been welcome, but it, it wasn't such a big surprise that it was what it was in the end. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the current Norwegian climate targets and what legal measures Norway has adopted to achieve those targets? How can we connect those targets with the obligation in the Article 112 of the Constitution? Well, Norway has its own Climate uh, Protection Act, its climate law, 
where it sets out its uh, obligation, which uh, currently I believe stands still at 50% in 2030 and aiming at climate neutrality in 2050. But it of course is highly influenced by the European um, decision-making and the new European Green Deal now has raised its uh, ambition to 25% and Norway is following suit in this regard. The main measure to implement this target is, of course, the um, emission trading scheme, the European emissions trading scheme under which Norway um, participates. Uh, there is a number of different sectors and industries that are covered by the emissions tra uh, trading scheme, and uh, the scheme sets a cap for emissions. And if uh, companies do not comply with that cap, they can actually either buy additional allowances or have to pay a fine. That's the central um, regulatory measure. But around it, are, uh, it's a whole host of other measures, uh, especially for those sectors that are not captured by the emissions trading scheme that applies to transport, transport uh, that applies to agriculture, for example, uh, buildings and so forth, where we have a whole range of different spe sector-specific um, regulations. In addition, there's a CO2 tax um, on, on some um, industries, which complements the European emissions trading scheme. But it is, it's very difficult to explain this all in, in a, a very brief or short time, but what I'm trying to say is that the, um, the climate goals are supported by many different uh, regulatory instruments. Thank you. And, and going back to, to the lawsuit, the case here, was, the, dispute, the dispute was about uh, some oil licenses in a new uh, section of the Barents Sea. And I was wondering if you can give us some information of uh, how they open a new field for, uh, for oil, oil drilling. What kind of considerations does the government have to take when they decide whether a new area should be uh, licensed for oil drilling? Um, that's not exactly my area of expertise. I can I could give you a very general overview, but I'm sure there are others who could go into the details of the um, uh, of the Petroleum Act that sets out the requirements. The only thing is, uh, what wasn't um, obeyed by the government was an uh, in-depth environmental impact assessment that actually does take into account the effects on uh, climate change, the global effects on climate change by uh, uh, new exploration activities. And that's something that the, the, the Supreme Court came back to. But all the detailed uh, um, uh, uh, procedural steps that uh, would have to be taken for new oil explorations, that's something that is not exactly my, my field of expertise. Yeah, no worries. You actually isolated the point we wanted to, to uh, pardon the pun, drill, uh, drill uh, into, uh, which is the fact that we are making um, uh, sort of an environmental impact report, but uh, only accounting for how this these emissions um, or for the emissions that would come in within Norway's borders and not from the carbon that we are exporting to be burnt elsewhere. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, that, of course, was the core issue of, of the case because the oil exploration licensees um, once they're handed out and in the meantime they all have been <laughs> handed out um, they lead to a right then also to start uh, exploration and, and the actual production of oil and gas uh, reserves that are found in these um, in these areas 
Now, as we know, most of uh, the um, produced oil and gas um, products in Norway are exported. And whatever happens with these products, they can be combusted and, and, and burned or can be used for uh, plastic production, for example. Whatever happens to these products and whatever environmental impact they have outside the Norwegian territory is uh, not part of the Norwegian sovereign uh, concern, uh, primarily under international environmental law, but also, of course, that's how national laws are made. But the question is, does Norway have an, a responsibility by contributing to uh, overall increased emission by kind of, you know, starting the supply chain? You take out these uh, products here, you sell them to somewhere else, somewhere else they're being burned and emit greenhouse gas emission, emissions. And there is a there is a causal chain in that. And the real core question is, what is Norway's responsibility for, for starting that, that causal chain by producing uh, these, these um, oil and gas here and then selling it? And also partly, uh, another part of the, the question is, how does that relate to the overall economic structure of Norway, where you know the, the, the income is so uh, much based on, on the income and, uh, from, from these oil exports? You know, the whole economy is based on that. And should therefore Norway also take a responsibility for the consequences of, of that activity in that sector? Yeah, and from what I understand, uh, understood, it's uh, uh, it has a basement base. It has a base in the Paris Agreement that you are only accounting for the emissions where they are combusted, as, as to avoid double counting and uh, and uh, the like. But uh, could you comment on how that existing framework and system? is actually quite beneficial to an oil exporter like Norway, where we can seem very green in our emissions, but we are actually a larger contributor to climate change, uh, if you look at the supply lines, for instance. Yeah, it's not just a larger contributor. I mean, it's 10 times as much, you know, the, the emissions exported or that are resulting from exported products are 10 times as much as the emissions in Norway. So it's not just larger, it's a significant uh, uh, contribution elsewhere. Now, in the Paris Agreement, it, it, you know, it's not written anywhere in the Paris Agreement explicitly that you only have to account for your territorial emissions. It's like it's the underlying understanding of state sovereignty and that you only um, have jurisdiction over your territory. That's where you can control measures. That's where you have uh, the possibility to adopt laws and to enforce them. And what happens outside your territory is not necessarily something that concerns you and shouldn't concern you. Um, there's an exception to that. That's the uh, customary rule and, and the international law that no state can use its territory in a way to cause environmental harm to other states or to areas beyond national jurisdiction. But that issue is not necessarily reflected in the accounting requirements under the Paris Agreement, where each state puts forward a nationally determined contribution and where it puts in measures that it aims to adopt on its own territory. But even there are exceptions. For example, many parties put in, for example, um, uh, trade measures, carbon trading, which necessarily is cross-boundary. So there is a cross-boundary element, which is saying, you know, it's not only what you do on your territory, you can also trade. Uh, but when it comes to accounting for uh, exported emissions that result from, from exported products, that is something that the Paris Agreement doesn't deal with. But uh, although this is not mentioned in the Paris Agreement, there are other things in the Paris Agreement which Supreme Court 
mentioned as an uh, instrument with which legally obliges Norway, but Supreme Court still didn't give it any additional weight when it was explaining the Article 112 of the Constitution. How do you, can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. And, and I, I did write a little bit about this as well um, in, in an article that I published earlier this year. Um, the, the Supreme Court did recognize the Paris Agreement as a legally binding agreement under international law, which under which Norway has certain obligations. But it never, you know, made that link about what these obligations actually are and what it means for Norwegian um, oil policy or climate policy, if you want to look at it, two sides of the same coin. Um, because the, the Paris Agreement sets out an overall uh, climate goal, amongst other things, of course. And in order to keep global warming to well below two degrees or even 1.5 degrees, um, that there is there is no other way than uh, achieving carbon neutrality by around 2050. And in order to get there, it's very clear that we cannot add more carbon into the atmosphere. So every um, program, every policy, every legal avenue that allows continued carbon dependency is countering the, the overall goal of the Paris Agreement. That's something that the Supreme Court could have dealt into, but it didn't. But it did draw in science, which says exactly the same, and it supports the Paris Agreement, but it didn't make the link between what the agreement uh, purposes and what science says to what kind of climate policies are commensurate to, to that science. And another aspect which I worked quite a lot on is that parties have to put forward an NDC, a nationally determined contribution, every five years. And every five years it has to raise in its level of ambition. But each NDC also has to amount or has to reflect each party's highest possible ambition. And the question is, what is the highest possible ambition? It's not defined anywhere in the Paris Agreement. Nobody checks it. But the re legal requirement is there, at least as an obligation of, of conduct. And there the argument can be made that, I mean, Norway could have done better, basically. That's not the highest possible ambition if you just continue with you know, oil exploration and just sell that stuff, burn somewhere else. Highest possible ambition looks different. You know, you could at least request from those that buy the Norwegian oil, that they uh, um, have capture, a carbon capture and storage capacities or that they regulate the emissions. Some of Norwegian oil goes to uh, or gas goes to China, where we have very little re regulation. So Norway could impose uh, export uh, um, restrictions or export um, uh, uh, demands uh, or requirements uh, requiring from those that actually buy Norwegian oil and gas that they do not contribute to overall emissions. How they do it is their thing, but at least they should make sure that this stuff doesn't go into the atmosphere, but maybe is some, somewhere kept on the ground. That would be an easy step. But Norway doesn't do that at, at all. And, uh, you know, that, that could be a way to comply with highest possible ambition. If you don't say, you know, we have to stop entirely or something. There, there are lots of ways in between to say we can do better and this is the way we do it. And this is actually sort of related to what we plan to ask you a bit later, but we can bring it up now since it fits uh, so nicely, is that a lot of people still argue that Norwegian um, uh, gas and oil are part of the solution to the climate uh, crisis. That's the, the wording they use because it uh, uh, can help phase out, for instance, uh, uh, coal in the rest of Europe. Uh, at least our gas can and um, uh, 
but as as you say we we should have at least some standards to that uh, it seems like that argument is only thrown that we should produce as much oil and gas as we can and hope that it helps the envi- uh, the environmental crisis in the right direction yeah i mean we've heard this this argument many times in addition to the argument you know whatever norway does is only a little bit to the but but that doesn't matter in my view it doesn't matter when every contribution to the solution matters and norway can do better especially you know not relying on on that sector entirely for its uh, economic uh, growth but i think that that argument that norway replaces coal in in europe uh, it is not substantiated it is not supported we had some uh, reports <laughs> by the oil industry um that said exactly that but you have to wonder you know how objective they are but uh, there is also a lot of scientific uh, uh um, input and and consensus that this is actually not the case because the decarbonization in europe is going so fast these days it's especially with the um, uh, 55, uh, Fit for 50, 55 package, that it does not depend on Norwegian oil and gas imports. It's just phasing out coal as we speak and switching to renewables. Uh, and there's, there's no switching from, from the Norwegian oil and gas in that, in that uh, uh, Fit for 55 package. Um, so I think Norway is just lagging behind by um, delaying that shift to to renewables by still supplying uh, uh oil and gas into that market it's a bit of a self-serving uh, hypothesis as well i i guess that uh, we we want to keep going with oil but uh and therefore we want to justify it uh, by by some measure i guess and we'll we'll get back to this uh, as as well but uh um since we were talking about the the article 112 and combustion com- combustion of the oil abroad i was wondering if you had any input on the supreme court's decision that we should in a way care about how emissions from oil combusted abroad uh changes the climate but only so far as that climate change impacts norway and uh and if you could also speak to some of that dynamic, what that means, and how it maybe dif- differs from the city and appellant court, if you have that. Uh... Um, yeah, I mean, this is actually, and again, I, I wrote about this a, a little bit, uh, I picked it up in my article. This is actually a very interesting part of the judgment, and it's slightly unexplored, but it opens, you know, widely an interesting door for future climate litigation, because if the, you know, the the Supreme Court said, well, you know, actually, these contributions to overall climate change could be harmful, and Norway could be liable for that if it causes climate damages in in Norway. Now, of course, it's not that particular emission, but it's the general contribution to the problem. But by the time climate change becomes tangible here in Norway, and that that seems to be just (laughs) around the corner, uh, you know, given that the the heat waves and floods and everything that we had in other parts of Europe uh, this summer, you know, Norway is a little bit protected because of its geographical location, but but it's going to come and it's going to hit Norway as well as it's right now hitting um, other countries. And by that time, where climate actually climate change impacts uh, Norway and Norwegian territory and and leaves you know leads to climate um, damages, 
then the question is, you know, isn't that also part uh, um, caused and contributed by Norway? And this is exactly what the what the uh, judgment says. It only said right now that's not the case. It's not really clear, but. In my view, it's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of whether and not, it's a matter of when. And by then, that door was opened uh, by the Supreme Court for, for further climate litigation. Yes, and in connection with that, we saw that one of the arguments used by the plaintiffs was that fossil resources that may be exploited globally in order to comply with the Paris Agreement have already been found and that there is no room for petroleum produced under this, this licensing decision. How do you perceive this argument? I mean, this is what science tells us. It's what the plaintiffs said, you know, a couple of years ago, but that's what we've heard only this year from the International Energy Agency's uh, Director General from the United Nations Director General, Antonio Guterres himself, they all keep on saying the consistent message that the oil that the atmosphere can store has been burned already. We, we have no capacity to burn more because what is in the pipeline up to the, in the atmosphere, there's an inertia that will continue the concentrations in the atmosphere for many, many years to come. So we already have contributed to climate change that will come in the future. But every single ton we are adding now is just raising the uh, increasing concentration and raising the future temperature increases. And science and the you know, highest political level is absolutely clear saying we, we have, there's no way of adding more. And yet we do. No way does, many others do. So yeah. that, you know, that, that, that argument is very central, but it is very disappointing that it doesn't yet find uh, more political will and support to follow it through. Yes, when you mentioned it, uh, that I um, wanted to ask you to comment briefly on the IPCC current work on the sixth assessment report and the recently published findings of the working group one, since uh, we also saw that Supreme Court recognize the seriousness of the climate change crisis by referring to the IPCC's findings, but still did not draw a link between those findings and the possible consequences which that can have on the interpretation of the Article 112. 12, yeah, exactly. No, no, I completely um, <laughs> agree with that. It was interesting to see the Supreme Court actually going into these reports by the IPCC, and that was good. Um, and it seemed to understand <laughs> the, the seriousness, what is, you know, what we can read of these reports, but then translating into what it means to interpret 112, there seemed to be, you know, a complete cut, that there was no, no link made between the science or the Paris Agreement and what it means in the term of interpretation, maybe as Sede Hensin, whatever that is in Norwegian, the, you know, the objectives that you have to take into account when you give meaning to the terms of a provision, and here it's a constitutional provision which hadn't been interpreted before. But back to the IPC AR6, the sixth first part of the sixth assessment report, which came out about two months or one month ago, time is weird these days. And it's it's interesting that there's several things, of course, in it, and this, this part two and part three will come next year. So the first part only deals with the physical um, basis of climate change, and next year we'll get a report 
on, on the impacts of climate change and another one on the mitigation uh, action required. So these two reports next year will be even more important and probably um, will be picked up by media and discussions anywhere. But this first part of the, the sixth assessment report said very clearly that it is without doubt, absolutely without doubt, that humans are causing uh, global warming. And, and, you know, scientists don't use the word certain or without doubt. So this is, that is extraordinary that they did this in this report. And then they have, they don't really say what needs to be done. This comes next year. But they're working with five emission scenarios about how the world can look like between now and the end of the century. And all five scenarios are possible. They're not unreasonable, unrealistic scenarios. But they say the world has basically, you know, different choices to make. And depending on the choices, we can keep temperature increases to somewhere to two degrees or even well below two degrees. Or they can go all the way up to 5.7 degrees. That is the highest point in these five scenarios. And it's very interesting to see what, what kind of action corresponds to these different, different scenarios. And if you look at the one scenario that stays below two degrees, that scenario says that right now, immediately, we have to drastically and rapidly cut emissions and to get to somewhere close to, uh, to, to get to net zero emissions by 2050 and then stay negative below zero until the end of the century. And these are really drastic changes that are required in order to make that happen. That's the only scenario that would correspond to the Paris Agreement and to what you know science said would need to be done. So that's a very important message um, by the IPCC in its latest report. So how, um, maybe a dif difficult question, but how would a better ruling look from the Supreme Court? Uh, what, what could be decided in the courts with respect to these uh, specific oil licenses and Section 112? Well, <clears throat> and that's interesting. You know, you could write a shadow judgment, and I actually started doing that, and then I ran out of time. But it might be a very uh, interesting exercise, maybe for some students, you know, write a shadow judgment. You know, given the arguments put forward, what else could, or what different judgment could the Supreme Court have rendered? Um, well, first of all, it could have, you know, in a more um, obiter dictum style, where it doesn't go into the, you know, the the, the issue of the case, but makes more general observations about how climate change and the legal system interact. It could have done that in a, in a more uh, consistent, coherent, and you know, timely manner than, than what it did, just saying, okay, this is what science says, but then we do something else. But in terms of the actual finding on the case, I think there was a possibility to, to say, well, first of all, there actually is a right when it says that each person has a right to a clean and healthy environment, that, that actually is a, a, a right that can be judicially reviewed. That's something the judgment didn't say, the court didn't say. It says it's an obligation to, for, the, um, for, the, for the government uh, to carry out certain um, acts and activities, but it didn't go that far to say explicitly that it's, or actually it said explicitly that it's not a right. And I think that is something very difficult to understand when the constitution, you know, in words that every person has a right to do. So that, that's something which is really um, unfortunate. But in terms of the, the question whether issuing these exploration licenses 
violated that right or the duty, it could have gone further. It could have looked at the overall impact of Norway to the climate problem. And even if it didn't want to say that these licenses were um, illegal or violated that right, it could have said that Norway could have put you know, export restrictions um, on these products when when selling uh, when selling this uh, to other countries in order to ensure that Norway doesn't contribute to overall emissions by making sure that wherever sells Norwegian oil and gas then has the uh, obligation to, to make sure that it doesn't increase emissions by whatever technology or you know planting forests or whatever they do that they have to to neutralize and offset uh, these additional emissions. So there are many possibilities that the um, that the uh, court could have pointed to. It didn't have to say it itself, but it could have played the ball back to the lawmaker and saying, please revisit your law, uh, please revisit uh, the, the regulation around this and take into account the overall um, uh, contribution that Norway has. So that the court doesn't appear as a lawmaker, but it lives up to its, uh, regulatory, to its um, uh, judicial function of judicial review and sends it back to the uh, parliament with the request to revisit uh, its, its legal um, framework. And I, I would love to talk more about the, the issue of whether it's actually a right, because it's baffling to me that uh, the that the Section 112 can start with everyone has the right to, and then it's still not, uh, uh, you're still not sure whether it actually is a right or not. Explain how that happens. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> to justify the no. supreme court in this situation no i'm sorry it was more of a joke here but um i mean i've been asked this question many times because i'm you know active in many international fora and one of the first question is like it says it's a right you know how can the court say it's not a right and that's it's very very difficult to justify um, you know, the, the, the reasons that the Supreme Court put forward were linked to the uh, travaux préparatoires, you know, the, the previous article and its history, and then, you know, trying to find some sort of reasons of why that does then also apply to this new formulation, which actually explicitly says each person has a right. Uh, um, every person has has a right. So it's it's a very in, in intricate argumentation that the the court has done, and and I think it did not do itself any favor by doing what it did. Um, and it's very very difficult to to justify. And it you know it didn't other than travaux préparatoires or preparatory um, uh, works, it didn't provide any other justification for why it is not a right, but just a duty. But uh, what we saw from the Supreme Court judgment is that the Supreme Court said that in order for courts to set aside a legislative decision, it must be established that duties under Article 112 have been grossly neglected. And do you, see, do you think that this high standard will affect the use of article in the future? Can we expect new lawsuits? Um, I think so. I mean, first of all, the first part to your question, yes, I think it will affect future lawsuits. And the, que the second question, can we expect future lawsuits? Well, we have to see. But the, 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 the court actually said several things. It said it can review the government, um, well, it, Article 112 can be used to establish a you know, standard of action if the lawmaker has not acted at all. 
if the parliament, for example, had not had any, you know, adopted any climate law or regulation at all, then article would come in uh, and 112 come in and, and fill that gap. And here the question is, you know, has the lawmaker actually acted on exported emissions? Because to my knowledge, there is no regulation, no law at all that deals with the um, exported emissions or the emissions from the export of oil and gas products. So you could actually make the argument that this is a, um, you know, an area where the lawmaker has not acted and where 112 would come in and fill that gap. Because, you know, the lawmaker has not acted. And then the second aspect is um, Article 112 can be the basis for judicial review if the parliament has grossly neglected its duties under Article 112, uh, third part to, you know, to enact um, effective measures. And here, that grossly ref uh, neglected um, element or requirement is not explained wh where that threshold lies. Where is the neglect? When does the neglect become a gross neglect? Um, that is not not clear, and that may be the 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 issue of of future law, uh, future cases to define more clearly what is the threshold of of gross neglect. Uh, what does the um, parliament have to do in order to grossly neglect something, and it's probably never fulfilled. But I think, in terms of climate change and the you know the science, the conclusive science that we have, a lawmaker that sets aside these considerations, despite you know a large part of the population, youth, and so forth pushing for it, and if a lawmaker says, says oh you know we we just we don't take this into account, I think that could be considered a gross uh, neglect, also when it you know. Uh, refers to to exported emissions, but this is something you know for years to come, and maybe we have other lawsuits that put, shed more light on defining more clearly where exactly this threshold lies. Because the threshold of gross negligence, it's uh, is that a term from from criminal uh, law or? Uh, if if you so... want me to provide a brief answer, it I think it would have been very helpful if the um, court had said where it has this gross negligence from, you know, where does that standard come from? Maybe from criminal law, maybe somewhere else, maybe from earlier cases, but it said nothing. It just came with this threshold without, you know, linking it to any other legal uh, uh, area or, or precedents. And that would have been helpful because then you could actually have uh, worked with it. But I do invite, you know, law students and my colleagues at the law faculty to, you know, shed more light on, on gross neglect and what it means and when it is, you know, past and, and when not. So there's a lot of research to be done. Because at least the way I understand it, it's, it's a high threshold for when the court should intervene then in what they deem like a p political decision. They say that the politician should do this, the, the decision should be made in parliament, and it's not. It's a very high bar for the court to intervene in these kind of matters. And in that, uh, I, I would also like to um, uh, talk more about the article that uh, you've, uh, you've stated you wrote, and we've uh, touched on some points from there already. Um, and I would like to uh, quote some of it here, that you say that opponents of the case uh, had uh, argued that asking the Supreme Court to rule on the legality of petroleum li licenses is trespassing the realm of politics. This is the article of uh, the climate judgment of the Norwegian Supreme Court aligning the law with politics. I'm uh, advising everyone to read it. It's a great, uh, great read and not too, uh, too hard uh, as a non-law student, uh, I might add. Uh, but you also say that 
uh, yet by aligning the content of the Constitution with prevailing politics, the, Sup the Supreme Court ultimately rendered a highly political decision. And we would love to hear uh, some more about um, about your views on that. Yeah, well, it's actually, you know, it's the title of the entire article that, you know, that there was a lot of debate um, for the entire time that lawsuit made it straight way through the different courts that this is not an issue for uh, for courts, but it's a, you know, a political issue and you have the division of power and courts have no role in that and so forth. Uh, because they shouldn't be political, you know, they should just apply the law <laughs> and, you know, not deal with politics. And in my view is that in the end, the court actually did render a highly political judgment, judgment because it used the law in a way to carve out a, a significant uh, discretion for the lawmaker uh, to do basically what whatever it wants, as long as it has done something, the Supreme Court said it has complied with Article 112, because then it has not grossly neglected its duty. And it doesn't matter what it did, as long as it did something on climate law, whatever the level of ambition, it has complied. And and this is the, the carve-out, where I say that the um, the Supreme Court used the, the law in order to align it with the prevailing politics. It carved out that space for politics to just, you know, continue pretty much business as usual. And the bottom line is, as we talked about earlier, that it, the Supreme Court could have done differently. You know, it could have done differently. It could have, uh, for example, set that threshold much lower. It could have said, you know, the, the, the lawmaker has to take into account climate change. It could have said there is a right and the right is violated, you know, if, 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 um, if individuals, if people, if, if citizens have to fear about their whatever, their, their future, their environment, their rights. Um, so it could have done many different ways that would have maybe infringed a little bit on the prevailing politics, but it didn't. Yes, and from what we saw, the Norwegian Supreme Court did not mention the right of future generations when considering Article 112. But um, exciting things about that are happening on the international stage currently, where uh, Vanuatu requested uh, the UN General Assembly uh, to ask for ICJ opinion regarding the present and future generations' rights to be protected from climate change. And um, what do you think that this can mean for the development of the international law regarding this right? Yeah. Well, just one step back to the Supreme Court, just one more time, one, one last, I don't know, maybe have more questions, but on this issue, one last word. This is another hardly justifiable aspect of the, of the judgment, where it is written explicitly in Article 112, uh, first paragraph, that this right applies to current and future generations. And with not a single word did the judgment, uh, did the court look into the intertemporal um, aspect of oil exploration and how that could affect to a, you know to a higher detriment the people that are young today but live into into the um, into the you know the, the, the realm of climate uh, change impacts not a single word and I think this is also not living up to the mandate that the Supreme Court has as the guardian of the the Constitution really it should have at least you know analyzed this and you know taken it into account in the interpretation of the uh, uh, of the lawmaker's duty under Article 112, and and that it didn't is just a very um, 
disappointing aspect. But as you said, you know, there's a lot of things happening elsewhere, and uh, you pointed to uh, Vanuatu's recent um, initiative to ask the United Nations General Assembly for a request to the International Court of Justice, Justice to render an advisory opinion, and the um, the possible possible question it's not quite clear uh, entirely what question will be asked um, and whether that goes forward but is the question is what are states obligation uh, to protect future uh, present and future generations from the impact of climate change and that's a very broad question but it has exactly that intertemporal aspect to it an intergenerational uh, justice as uh, justice aspect but that's not the only case we have also currently a number of cases pending at the european court of justice uh, on climate change, uh, most of them, if not all of them, also uh, have uh, the aspect that are being put forward by children, by young people. One is put forward by, by elderly uh, ladies from Switzerland, but the other three, uh, at least two of them are put forward by uh, young people who are worried about the impact of climate change on their right to life and, and uh, private life already now, but even more so in the future. So there is this aspect of not future generations, but of generations of people that are young today, but live into to a different future. And it has this intertemporal aspect as well. So we will see what the European Court of Justice has to say or whether Vanuatu's request is successful. But uh, there is a strong, strong push to involve international courts and regional courts on the issue of climate change and on the issue of, of uh, the intergenerational um, aspect of it. Yeah, and could you speak a bit more about the state of like uh, uh, in, uh, climate lawsuits other places in, in the world? For instance, we saw that uh, uh, Royal Dutch Shell was ordered to cut their emissions uh, more than they planned, for instance. And what parallels can you draw from the Norwegian case to other uh, cases happening in other countries? Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, to, to, I mean, climate litigation is is a wave that you know washes all over the world uh, right now because we see climate cases being brought uh, uh, to courts in in many many countries, both global north, global south. Um, there's just this enormous. Um, engagement of the judiciary in the question of climate change and it's not surprising because as i said the science is clear but political willingness is lagging and in that situation you know the third pillar of power comes squarely into the picture and this is what courts are there for they are there to hold governments accountable to their rights and to their duties and their obligations towards their citizens and towards each other. And if they don't live up to that, uh, then that's an issue for courts. So we see this uh, in, in many countries. And you alluded to a recent case against uh, Royal um, Dutch um, Royal Shell in the Netherlands, which was an interesting case because it was one of the first ones against a private uh, company. And here, the um, first instance court in, in The Hague in the Netherlands found that Royal Dutch Shell was violating a duty of care, an unwritten duty of care in, Royal, in, in, Nether, in Dutch tort law. Um, and that duty of care was interpreted taking into account science, the IPCC, but also the Paris Agreement, but also human rights obligations. It doesn't mean that this applies to Royal Dutch Shell as a corporate actor, 
but the duty of care applies to Royal Dutch Shell. And in order to give meaning and content to that duty, the court drew in all these other aspects and then ordered Royal Dutch Shell to cut its emissions, not just in the Netherlands, but in its entire supply chain and all its uh, dependencies in about 120 countries, which is quite a, a significant finding. But this is just one example. Another one is the German constitution, uh, federal constitutional court rendered a judgment earlier this year on the violation of liberty rights of young people today, which will grow into a future where the, you know, the freedoms that we have these days and take for granted, like, you know, buying t-shirts everywhere, buying stuff and traveling everywhere, these freedoms will be drastically constrained in the future. If we, if we mean climate change action seriously, these young people today, when they grow older, they will not have the same freedoms. And that is discriminatory in an intertemporal aspect. They will have to live in a carbon constrained future, uh, something that we don't do right now, but they will have to do if they will have to bear the burden. And the, the, the court said this is, you know, this is discriminating um, and is violating their rights. And at least the burden should be um, uh, allocated equally uh, from now on until 2050. And compared to the Dutch case, then the Norwegian Supreme Court seems very conservative since they had like a written out right to climate and the climate paragraph and uh, they still did not uh, uh, get like a very pro-climate decision out of the out of the lawsuit uh, does that mean that the norwegian judiciary is quite conservative in comparison to the dutch or do we have perhaps like a soft spot for oil being an oil nation well, I, I I won't comment on whether the Norwegian Supreme Court judges have a soft spot for oil. Um, this this is something I will not, you know. Well, perhaps the Norwegian people in general, I think. That's, on, uh... But what I think is that I mean, I am in many of these international networks of judges where I see them talking to each other and you know meeting in seminars explaining to each other their judgment and why they did what they did and you know they're, they're critical to each other it's not that they all say oh we'll do the same this sounds no no they're critical but they learn from each other and they try to understand what you and i've never seen any norwegian judge in these networks you know not a single one there are judges from america from brazil from everywhere um, but 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 maybe you know they're maybe not that looped in into these international networks. They were all educated at the time where environmental or climate law were not part of the uh, curriculum at the at the law faculty. You know, I, I teach this now, so every young uh, um, student, law student, um, has to at least take in environmental law, and if they want to, they can also have courses in climate law. That wasn't the case when the current Supreme Court judges were you know going to law school. Um, but maybe it's also the, the general culture here, uh, legal culture in, in Norway and the understanding of what the Supreme Court does. Maybe it doesn't really see itself as a guardian of the Constitution um, and, and it has a more you know, reluctant um, approach to it. I mean, I'm, I'm trained in Germany where we have a constitutional court. You know, it's such so ingrained in the, in the legal culture that, yes, there is a court that looks at whether the Constitution is, is complied with. Um, but here it's it's a bit more of a, um, an organic <laughs> situation, so there may be different reasons why why it is rather conservative. But maybe it's a matter of time, you know, it's a matter of generations. Maybe there are new people coming in that may look at the law differently and maybe with more open eyes and and um, concerns about you know what 
impacts actually the rights and duties of, of um, the state and the citizens respectively it might might be a question of getting more more radical judges perhaps or more climate aware judges is sort of a summation of that i don't think you i mean radical is not is not the right uh, thing i mean you probably will no, never i'm get i'm regretting using that word. that word because just, it's not uh, i would not consider that radical in today's climate yeah again, that's so. what i exactly what's uh, exactly what i was about to say you don't have to be radical you know just to have to be informed you know you just have to be able to read science and scientific reports and you know have have a logical mind to, to put one and one together um and and how that then translates in into the law so i don't see anything radical about this at all you just have to be a citizen really uh who is concerned and who is uh informed and and you know lives up to to its citizens um, duty to its current fellow citizens but in particular to those that are young today and, and vulnerable and not part of the decision-making process. You know, children have no real say in, 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 in political decisions other than, you know, taking to the streets. And that's not, you know, very effective either to, to a certain extent. But I think it's it's more of a growing awareness of, you know, what what is climate change? What are these challenges that, that we are facing? And how does that translate into the law? It's not just something outside the law that you know other people deal with it is part and parcel of the legal profession as well and i think that's something that probably uh, will sink in uh, soon enough but do you think it's hard for the current uh, supreme court to make a more climate friendly decision on this issue because of the political climate in norway where the let's say the people that voted for the government we've had for uh, now eight, eight years use the argument of Norwegian oil and gas being part of the solution and that's kind of the framework of probably like half of the population so does that make it more diff difficult for the supreme court to act against that well it you know on a personal individual level and in a court is always a number of individuals and by the end of the day it's people those people that those persons on the court that have to make these decisions and they you know they reflect their personal value system there as well and in their education and of course the law but there's also personal values and certain ethics and and i do think there's there's a certain alignment between the value system on the court and the majority of people here but you know by the end of the day the court should be independent it should be uh, neutral and objective and apply the law to the facts and uh, protect rights uh, if it recognizes that there are rights in an independent and legally uh, dutiful and 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 uh, diligent manner and these you know personal preferences shouldn't really play a role if if the government if the parliament violates a right of a citizen by adopting a certain act or by rendering a certain decision then it should be the court's um you know prerogative to say that here a threshold line was crossed uh, a threshold was crossed or line was crossed and and a right was violated and the uh, the parliament or the government acted unlawfully that that should always be the case you know if that's not possible you have to question the whole meaning of of the third pillar of power and the balance of of power
But what you mentioned makes us wonder what is the role of the legal system in the climate activist and uh, what do you think are benefits and limitations of using the legal system as an activist's tool? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say uh, in, in general terms, you may have to look at you know, each case at the time and there are, of course, benefits in terms of raising awareness, in terms of thinking about what does the law actually say about climate change? Um, are there obligations? Are there duties? Are there rights that need protected that can could be violated by, by uh, you know, certain climate-friendly decisions or, or politics or, or laws? So that that you know, shedding the spotlight on um, a revision or interpretation or use of the legal system is very important uh, because I think we actually have entered the, 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 the time of law. You know, we had the time of science and politics, but this is kind of, that's all clear. But now it's about, you know, how can we make this transition by the use of law, by le legislation as well, but if legislation isn't enough, then also by, by litigation. But of course, there are downsides as, as, as well. I mean, you may lose a case, like you know, Norway, and then you're like back to, back to the start, back to zero, uh, or you may actually um, contribute to, to legal developments by, you know, by, by, by judgments that go in the wrong direction. Um, you can, um, you know, th there are lots of lots of challenges that that come along with it. It could also be a perverse incentive for for governments to take more ambitious action because they say, oh, well, we wait until we are told by a court, and that can be many years. So until then, we just you know do business as usual. So there's also that that downside of it, and and probably many more. But uh, you know, it's, it's it's as everything in life, you know, it's it's a pro and con <laughs> balance and. I don't think there's a you know absolute um, benefit or an absolute um, disadvantage, but it, it's a it's a tool in in the in the um, uh, um, uh, in the rule of law. If you if you're serious about applying the rule of law and the division of power, then courts and the judicial system has to play an equally important role as the lawmaker and the executive. So I think that's all we're going to have uh, time for today. But uh, I think that was a really interesting uh, conversation. So thank you for taking the time. It was uh, really a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for your questions. They were excellent and, and very, very deep. I, I enjoyed uh, uh, reading them when I got them yesterday. And I really enjoyed having this conversation uh, with you, trying to answer them. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Right, so that was some uh, kind words from Christina there at the end, and of course, a very interesting interview. So um, I don't know, Eva, what you feel that we got out of this uh, conversation? Well, I think we got a lot of useful information. Uh, I would maybe mention, uh, from my perspective, it was interesting to hear uh, that the Professor Voigt thinks that Norwegian government could have done more when it comes to combustions abroad. They could have imposed export restrictions so that the countries which are getting Norwegian oil and gas do not contribute to global emissions, but also that Supreme Court could have said that Norwegian government should have done that, but they also missed that opportunity. And um, 
I think it's also interesting that the Professor Voigt said that this could open the door for future litigation uh, when climate change hits Norway. Um, so yes, we'll, we'll see, will that happen? Uh, what do you think? I think it's uh, also, you, you know, you get the sense of haste when she talks about the inertia of uh, climate emissions. Like there's already been released so much CO2 that we're, uh, that hasn't caused warming yet, but uh, will cause it further in the future. And we're, we're running out of time to make the, the big needed decisions on, on this area. So, but we have some disappointing realizations about the court's decision in this area, uh, like the standards they set and how that might be a hindrance in the future. What kind of uh, what kind of precedents there there came from from this case? But uh, nevertheless, I think it was very interesting, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to do more of these interviews. So, thank you all for listening, and we hope to see you in the next episode. <laughs>